0: Today, looking for Garza backside and
1: in for the first goal in Atlanta United history from Yamil
0: Assad. Take a look at history.
1: Five star final. Jason Jones from Mothership and Dirty South Soccer. Joe Patrick, 92.9 in the game, and Dirty South Soccer is over there. Say, hey, Joe. Actually, no one cares. We have, we have a special guest. Um, Felipe Cardenas from the Athletic is with us. Felipe, how are we doing?
2: Hey guys, happy to be here. It's been it's been forever.
1: It's been a set too long. I think we had you. I want to say on one of the very first Five Strikes. Yeah, back then. yeah. I think I was one back. of the
0: first guests, guys. I think you were. I think you were the first yeah. guest. I, I first want
1: one. to say. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, a lot of things have happened since we last had you on, Felipe. Um, but it, we'll kind of keep it focused to the here and now. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you know. An interesting tournament, to say the least, uh, for Atlanta United, and you were able to report on some of the the inner workings, or lack thereof, I guess, behind the scenes uh, for Atlanta United there. Uh, And so I kind of want to talk a little bit about um, just your kind of perspective in in dealing with this team over the last year and a half under Frank. Because I think me and Joe kind of came to a lot of the same conclusions that we could tell that something was off. We maybe didn't have the concrete details. Um, you did have some of those concrete details. Um, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that and, and kind of get your feeling on the tenure as a whole.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think those of us that, you know, go to train every day and, and spoke with Frank and spoke to the players. Uh, I think we knew that it was, it, everyone was adjusting. Like it was this huge adjustment period that never seemed to end. Like even when they were winning a couple of the trophies, or they went on that like shutout streak, uh, it just it, things just seemed a little bit off. Uh, and I know Joe and I have talked about it. Like you know, Frank DeVore away from like the soccer talk, was a nice guy, man. Like yeah. he was an enjoyable person, and he he was he was you know pretty open in these scrums. Uh, but there, to me personally, there was a sense that the confusion on the field. Uh, like the, the, the disconnect between the staff and the players, uh, that to me was was pretty obvious. And, and that, you can see that from inconsistent play, like any, any, any sport, uh, any team sport, when teams are up and down, you know something is off. Uh, and so, you know, I think the Frank DeBoer tenure, if I could describe it, uh, first of all, it just didn't start out very well. Uh, and, and I think again, the fir- one of the first questions I think it was the first question I asked Carlos Bocanegra when Frank de was introduced was if there was any concern with the fact that the culture was going to change pretty drastically inside that locker room, coming from the South American staff and, and the players and what they were used to uh, to this, you know, very European style of coaching. Uh, and you know, Carlos, Carlos was 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 open, saying that that was not a concern that that you know that. There was a philosophy in place, a player profile in place, and that the coach and the players, you know, just kind of adjust to that. But clearly, it was a big problem. It was, um, and, and, and you know, I stand by the fact that it, it wasn't a great hire. You know, you know, Frank de pretty legendary career as a player, um, but as a coach, it just didn't seem like the the right progression from Tata Martino, um, both being like just pedigree as a coach. Background, culture, playing uh, style—just so many things that I felt like the the front office was willing to take on some some pretty big risks, Uh, and and clearly those things did not pan out. And so I think that's kind of the gist of the Frank DeBoer tenure in Orlando. I think all of those problems just really came to a head, Um, and you know the pandemic didn't help. Like the time off, I think people were able to think about things. Like clearly. Like what we reported in The Athletic, the people, you know, players walking off the field, the, the relationship between Piti Martinez and Frank DeBoer never got better. It was fractured from the moment Frank, you know, quote-unquote, kind of threw him under the bus early on, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and it just it never got better. And so you could see that on the field. I'm not going to say the players were, were, like, necessarily quitting. I think there was an effort there, but the effort was not channeled in the right way
0: it's I'm glad you mentioned that introductory press conference, Felipe, because I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was like right after it was done when people are kind of milling about and leaving, going back to their news networks or home or wherever they're going. And we were kind of just chatting. It was like, this is weird. This seems <laughs> weird. You yeah. know, like, doesn't it like it feels weird. it just like felt there was, there was something about that press conference that felt so much different than any of the other kind of press events or media that they'd done before. And You know, that's a very anecdotal thing, whatever. Sometimes those things are weird. Sometimes they're buttoned up and it's obviously it was the first time they were going through a managerial change. So, you know, I I guess it should feel that way to an extent. But it did seem like just like and I think that we had talked about like the culturally it was just you could almost sense it from the very beginning that Mm -hmm. it was going to be, you know, maybe you couldn't have predicted the way it went, but at least you you kind of understood that there was going to be some rough patches, especially in the beginning of just trying to get. Frank DeBoer and the players on side, you know, like on the same wavelength. Um, yeah. And it it just didn't seem like that ever was really um, they were fully in flow with one another. It seemed like even last year when they went on that good run, that was in large part due to, you know, Frank taking more of a hands off approach mm-hmm. and letting the players do their thing. Um, and you're right. Like I get I think the Orlando tournament just kind of really exposed all that, but it was kind of lurking underneath the,
2: underneath the surface all throughout. Absolutely. It really was like that day and not to like stay on the press, the the introductory press conference, but you're right. I mean, I remember Carlos Spokaneur again, like he opened up the press conference by like really making a point that like, okay, last year was great, but we're moving on. Um, And he, you know, these are the tournaments that we're facing. This is the timetable that we're facing. We have a new coach. Like, that's fine, like he should say those things. Um, but in hindsight, it almost feels like it was a, a really quick, I guess, trigger and a a, a a quick progression from just like moving off from the Tata Martina era, which was spectacular for the club. It was spectacular for the league, for everyone involved, and, and to kind of just like move away from that really quickly uh and try to like just like put it in the back burner. And forget about it. it just seemed kind of weird to me and, and, and listen Frank Boer, like remember that day I remember even it was like in a couple of weeks he had to get ready for Champions League mm-hmm. um yeah and and it was just like kind of awkward timing like you you almost had a feeling like there's this is going to be tough for this guy to get to get the players to trust him uh considering like the language barriers the cultural changes there was already a sense that you know he's going to want to change things tactically you know like I think you most managers want to do that regardless of whether they're the the same nationality of the majority of the locker room so uh and then training begins and it's just like they go right on into full 11 v 11 scrimmages and so that was the first time where like pt martinez who uh, one of the first times he spoke to us was at mercedes-benz stadium and i remember that day he was it was the first time i was like wow this guy's like really open and candid you know like he 'll just tell it as it, as it is and one of the things he said is like this has been difficult because we're just playing we're just playing like in preseason in argentina you don't touch the ball for like three weeks it's like <laughs> it's all physical it's it's fitness it's getting ready it's tactical um it's kind of like camaraderie like if you look at mm-hmm. like river plates preseason tournament or preseason schedules they'll fly to uruguay and like ride bikes together train on the beach like this kind of like it's similar to what matias almeida does with san jose they go to cancun and they just kind of get together and they get fit and and frank not having any time to work we're just like let's just start playing and so that yeah it was just like a, a, a they stuttered at the beginning they lost they were losing right away which was already kind of a red flag but orlando yeah just like you could see it like If you, you don't need to be a soccer expert to see players, the body language is off like two minutes in the matches, the first misplaced ball, guys are upset, guys are frustrated. And and just going back to different moments in the season, uh, multiple players kind of like yelling at the bench, yelling at the technical staff for, for whatever reason, you know, confusion, not not agreeing with tactics, whatever it may be. Uh, And of course we've covered this, but the roster changed dramatically. I think that hurt. Frank DeBoer, honestly, as a coach, like he doesn't have the talent. Clearly, they they tried to bring in talent to fit his three four three system, um, but it just wasn't overall a big upgrade. So you, you're placing all of that baggage in the hands of a manager that, to be frank no (pun intended), like is coming off too. He'll never let pretty, that down. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Um, yeah. But like, you're putting all of that baggage, all of that responsibility. Um, the big culture change, the lack of talent in key areas, and then asking him, OK, coach this team and like get them back to the top. So it was just like a huge mountain to climb. And it didn't work out.
0: If if I could, I, I that's a great point that you mentioned about just kind of the time when he was brought in, because if you think about, it, I think Atlanta's uh, MLS Cup was December 9th Eighth. and 8th, 9th. And, um, uh, the season started in like early January, uh, mm-hmm. th- at least like the preseason camp did. So it was not that much time. And of course, Tata had let them know. Uh, the other thing we should mention is that that's, this was, of course, Tata's decision not to renew his contract. He had a two year extension that he could have triggered. He chose not to do that. Um, so to give the club the benefit of the doubt, it's not like they were trying to push Tata Martino out. They would have loved right. to keep him, of course. Totally. Um, But, you know, I do think that it makes sense the fact that they landed on DeBoer because it's like, well, you don't have that much time to find somebody else. And of course, they were trying and hoping that Tata would agree to two more years right up until he made that decision, which was pretty late in the season. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that DeBoer, you know, would come out of kind of. Darren Eels' Rolodex, you know, of a guy he had interviewed uh, for the Tottenham job. You know, it was a guy that he knew and a guy that had big credentials. And so I think for that reason, it makes sense. I think that and we'll talk about this in kind of the second half when we start talking about where this club is going to go. But I think we'll see a different approach this time around where they have a lot more time to kind of plan things out, really get a good scope of who's out there, who would be the best fit and that kind of thing. But it does make sense um, that like that they would have landed on someone like DeBoer at that time.
2: And, and remember, and, and this is going to, going to happen now as well with this coaching search, agents are heavily involved. Oh, like yeah. coaching agents, they, they, they're they the ones that bring the candidates to teams a lot of times. Sometimes they're candidates that you would never, you couldn't imagine fitting in with a club. Um, and, and the reason I bring that up is because I remember Frank DeBoer's agent, I, I forget his name, but he was really out there in the press like talking about Frank having, uh, you know, being this like you know, man, manager type of coach, a, a manager that wants to be on the field, wants to be training every day. That's why he turned down some national team gigs Uh Ander-elect wanted him. But this is the right fit. And so clearly, you know, that probably played a role as well. Like you have an agent that's probably had a relationship with Darren Niels as well. I don't know that, but you're, he's coming to you and, and he's promoting his his guy um but when i go back and, and read some of the quotes i'm like uh like does he did, did frank really work that hard like you know i don't know like the our sources told us that it clearly there was a huge difference in the type of attention to detail that tata and his staff put in and you can ask players players were pretty mm-hmm. open about this during his time everything from film study especially film study that was like Taught to like obsessed over it. And Frank was like not that type of guy. And so, in our story we, that we broke, you know, we had a source saying like he wasn't really that detail oriented. So, that's why I bring up the agent thing because the agent is selling him as this guy that's like really hardworking. Um, and I don't think that really panned out as well.
0: Sam, I'll get you, I'll let you get a word in, in a second. Yeah. <laughs> but I do what, um, speaking of the film room thing, it just reminded <laughs> me, <laughs> it just reminded me of, um, do you remember the one time we talked to Kevin Kratz and I think it was like the week before leading up the MLS cup. And he was like, I've never analyzed soccer the way I have until Tata Martino came. He was like, he looks about it. He looks at the game completely differently. And it was just a fascinating insight to kind of see how a manager like that could actually like get the wheels turning in a different way inside of a player's brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and it goes to show just how deeply they were analyzing certain things. And of course, uh, Kratz was talking about how they wanted to, you know, they looked at like the attack first and then built the defense around that. Um, but I think it was just representative
2: of just how detailed Tata Martino was. Absolutely. And you, and Kevin Kratz is a great example because this is a guy that he played in the Bundesliga, you know, not on a big team. He was promoted. His team was promoted to the Bundesliga, but he played against Pep Guardiola's barn Munich sides. And, and I've had conversations with Kevin Kratz um, where he breaks down Pep's like style of play and the tactics and the way that inverted wingers play. And that sometimes um, you know, Philip Lam, who's like, uh, you know, a, a right fullback is playing as a number 10. Um, and, and Alaba is up, is, is switching sides. It was just like this crazy way of seeing football. And then at the same time, he's, he's not comparing Pep and Martino, but he's saying like, then I'm playing with, you know, that I'm being coached by Martino and I'm learning even more things tactically, especially about like how to press when to press, um, and, and how to set up against any opponent and be the team that's going to dominate. Um, so listen, I think I remember writing throughout the year, covering the team with Frank Boer, and I would get comments in my articles like, Oh, you like hate on DeBoer and like, you're just a Tata guy. And it's like, no, I mean, I have a ton of respect for Tata Martino. Yes. And I continue to cover him as Mexico's manager. And I see that progression, the same things that worked, um, with Atlanta United and then an evolution in his formations with Mexico. And it's working. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's where that comes from. And with Frank, I remember thinking like, you know what, Frank DeBoer could be the most successful manager in Atlanta United history if he, you know, if he stays and they win. like, He could wipe out anything, any of the accomplishments that Tata Martino you know, pretty much did in the two years that he was here. But again, that didn't, that didn't happen for, for mm-hmm. all these reasons that we're talking about. So that's why y- you, know, you have to give credit to Tata Martino. You have to give credit the front office for making that hire but like I wrote in this in the story that posted today today's Thursday is that like the I guess the the failure of Frank Boer actually has elevated Tata Martino's stature in, at, in in the club and in a major league soccer Tata Martino is still considered one of the biggest hires in league
1: history which I think means yeah turn, you know you kind of have to consider the the next person that comes in which I think you kind of touched on the story the next person That comes in. Kind of has to fit that mold, right? He kind of has to have that same kind of Tata-esque presence uh, to the club, you know. And it's it's interesting to kind of think about who, who in the world can be that. You know, Uh, he was such a a personality and such an interesting presence, um, you know. But y'all talk about the training. I remember Bobby Boswell uh, talking about just how difficult training was all the time. He said he never worked that hard in his life, and then. Eventually it came out, of course, that, uh, you know, there was a complaint to the, the MLSPA about mm-hmm. it. Um, so it, I don't know, man. It, it's interesting to think about how... And Tata was kind of offended. Not like offended,
2: yeah. like, oh, how dare you? He was like, whoa, taking it back. Like, I didn't know that this was an issue, that, you know, players <laughs> went over my head. Wow. Uh, and again, that's that's t- that proves that there were cl- issues culturally, even under Tata Martino. Like, it's not mm-hmm. like everything was was perfect you know it's not like everyone in the locker room was just like love tata but i think everyone in the end would play for him would 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 believed in okay this is going to make us a better team we're going to win if we all stick to this collectively uh bobby boswell told me once that he'd never played for a manager that was better at post or halftime adjustments than tata martino um and and, and and i i've tried to touch on that in some stories when i you know, in the Frank DeBoer tenure is that, you know, he again, it's just a different style of management. He has told us, he told reporters that he wants, he wanted the team to be able to essentially adjust on the fly themselves in games. Like if they notice something that's, um, you know, if they need to go back to a back four, they start in the back three, like he expected the players to be able to recognize that and do it that's fine. Like that, that's, that's, that worked at IAX because he was coaching players that he has known probably since they were 13 years old and they were very good. Uh, but with, with this, with MLS, it's like, it's, you need to be like a Peter Vermees type of coach that's been there for double digit years and, 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 and there's a system in place. And, and I always felt that that was going to be a problem to, to go from Tassa who was on the sideline, very engaged, changing things, moving players around uh, to, to Frank DeBoer that was very reserved on the touchline and wanted to see the players kind of make those adjustments themselves. And I think sometimes they did, but if ultimately I think players, even at the professional level, want that support from their manager. And and I think that was going back to Orlando, you started to see that like they had just pretty much lost faith in, in him at that point. And,
0: and going back to that training, I, it does kind of um, – I... I think there's a misperception that, that the players and Tata just like were this happy family. They got so, along all the time absolutely. and they never had any issues. You know, like I think <laughs> the players were pretty worn down the coming yeah. down the stretch of that last, the, the season that they won MLS cup, but they really faltered down the stretch, not winning supporters shield. And I think that it was partly because Tata had really ground them down. I'll never forget yeah. the, the media that we did um, following the loss to Toronto, um, and losing the supporter shield. And it was so down that day at the club or at the, uh, at the training ground and it was pouring rain outside and they weren't, they actually were not on the field, which was shocking. It was like one of the first time I'd ever seen them not being out there, even in those terrible conditions. And, um, but I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, they had trust in him. Like they would, like you said, they would still, they, they believed in what he was in the instructions and, just believed in him as their manager. And I just never mm-hmm. felt that they, the players felt that same way with Frank DeBoer. Like, right. And it's not the, like I saw Frank once set training, like literally go up and like put his arm around Tito and they were like, and Tito was laughing and they were having a good conversation. And you same can do that. They
2: did that as well. Like we yeah, caught that. Totally. I think we all noticed it like, Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and and you can do those things. But at the end of the day, it's like in the heat of the moment during a game, um, does that actually matter, you know, yeah. or is it like more fundamental than that? And I just right. really think that, that that level of trust was never quite reached with between the players and Frank DeBoer. And so, yeah, I think, and I think, again, I think that Orlando really
2: shone a light on that. Let me say two things before, if you guys want to move on, but I haven't written this because it's hard to to kind of put in the context of a story, but two things. One, uh, you know, I, I agree with that because. You know, there's so much talk about like the the locker room under Tata Martino and, and the players that came and the fact that they were so committed to his philosophy. Um, I, I think with the, when the when the roster turned over and these players left, it, it was very easy to say, "Oh, well, this is MLS. Like this is MLS. Like there's cap issues, and like you can't get everybody races." Like Darren Eels was very open about that, and, and I thought he was honest about the way that they tried to manage that. Um, but he, here's why the players, in my opinion, were so, I think, upset with the way that the the, the culture changed so drastically. Like, you have players like, you know, Miguel Amarón, Joseph Martinez, Tito, and Leandro Gonzalez-Perez, for example, that had pretty good careers abroad. Like, a lot of people want to, you know, kind of bag on Joseph Martinez because he wasn't a star in Serie A, but, bro, he's playing in Europe. He was playing in Europe. Um, He was doing well. He he was a national team player. Miguel Marone could have gone to Europe from Lanús if he wanted to. Uh, Gonzalez Perez kind of was finding his way, but he had already made a a brief jump to Europe as well. He had gone to Belgium and played, uh, and he probably had offers. Tito the same way. Tito had won a Copa Thoris with San Lorenzo. And so then Tata Martino basically calls them and says, I'm coming to MLS. I'm coming to Atlanta. I want you guys with me because we're going to win this thing. And they uproot their families they they take shots at home. You're going to MLS. You're going like you're going to Atlanta, a club that has four months of history, and they're coming from these like 100 year institutions. They took these huge risks, and then they show up and they were like extremely committed to winning for the club. And, and so sometimes I feel like that gets just kind of understated like that they made that those players made that commitment and and it's a it was a big risk especially for like Miguel Almaron for someone to tell him no if you come here this is the move that will get you to Europe you know not playing not moving from perhaps Lanus to a bigger club in Argentina it's coming to MLS to to, 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 a, to new, a brand new club so when I when I think about the players being upset during the 2019 and kind of like all those cries for help that they're basically telling us in scrums. I mean, if you look back, it's like, they're telling, yeah. they were like, they're like telling us dudes, guys, like, we're not happy. Like, this is not how we're supposed to play. I think it stems from that, that they're like, like, we made this commitment. We made the commitment. We built that winning culture. We won for this club. And now it's just kind of like, well, let's move on. And so that's something that that is important. And, and to your point about like, playing for Tata, like I remember after the, after the MLS cup, we're all in the locker room. I'm interviewing just whoever you can get a hold of. Um, and Jeff Lorenowitz, you know, 400 game Jeff Lorenowitz is, is telling me that like, he just want, he, he just hoped that Tata Martino was proud of him in the end because he's a player that, um, had to change everything about his game. He's a player that Landro gonzalez Perez one time told me in a scrum, that he was concerned about playing with when he first got to the team, he was like, Jeff. learning. It's <laughs> like, who is this guy? And, and plus at first in training, he thought Jeff was like, was, you know, a really hard worker. But then when, when pushing the shove and like the scrimmages and you're, you're talking about like playing as a six and going back to the back four. And then like, da da like playing with your back to goal building out? Like Jeff kind of froze and Leandro was like, bro, like we need you. And so there was a progression even from veteran players under Martino that They were like, okay, yeah, this is my chance to like win something. So that's why those players were so, I guess, for lack of a better word, upset when things did not go their way. And they were kind of like, what about us? Mm -hmm. That's just my opinion. No one's told me that, but that's, that's what I gathered from talking to, 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 to players, talking to sources and making my own assumption that if, if I'm those guys and I'm coming from the countries that they were coming from to this league, uh, and then to to perform the way they did so quickly, and and Joe, you've been in these press conferences when they lose games. Like Santa Martino lost multiple back to back Copa Americas. Like that's about as bad as it gets. And you you saw them like devastated after losses, mm-hmm. you know. And so clearly there was a, a big commitment collectively to be like who Atlanta United is today. Thanks to them.
0: Yeah, I remember that uh, the the post game after they lost to Columbus that first year, Tata looked, I don't know if a tear actually came out, but it sounded like he was like shaken up and he was like, you know, it's going to be a new team next year. And you could tell for him, it felt like the end of this journey that was with those with that group of players that he had that year. And it reminds me of like what Matias Almeida is building in San Jose, because he's talked he talks in that same kind of language, saying Mm -hmm. like we're on a journey together. It is really an emotional game you know like it is tactical yeah. and all these things, but at the end of the day like your heart really needs to be in it with the other guy's heart and like you have to have all these people together in this boat that are all paddling in this you know um, with synchronicity and just with this all the same determination moving in the same direction
2: and it just yeah just never and that's, really... and that's not what happened in Orlando basically you just described what was going on in Orlando like th- they were not together. Even if yeah. they probably like got on the field in the first few minutes, like, all right, let's do this. I'm sure that's what it is. And, and individually, there are some really good players on that team. Um, but as soon as it just kind of like breaks down and the game starts and then you're playing against teams that are like, you know, not that afraid of you anymore. And, and, and OK, with like, we're just going to defend and, and frustrate you. Uh, th- that's just a kind of a
1: recipe for disaster. I keep laughing that they literally did the thing where like the family or like the relationship goes down on vacation and then realizes all their problems all at once. <laughs> Cause I've done that. Like my family yeah. done that, you know, it yeah. feels, it feels a little yeah. too real guys really does. <laughs> um, but uh, you had a lot of great quotes, Felipe in your piece today, um, just from Atlanta and players talking about other coaches and how they've kind of mm-hmm. inspired them. And it's something that I think is really apparent that they never, ever, Ever even came close to saying these things about Frank? Um, you talked about um, Ezekiel Barco, uh, talking about Gabriel Melito. Um, he says Melito's a passionate coach, she wanted us to always play hard and be aggressive, it was contagious, and he got the best out of all of us. Um, can you imagine anyone in the world saying that about Frank DeBoer? I
2: don't think you you can, Sam. You're right, though. No one did, like, and we and no one belittled him or no one said, Mm -hmm. Oh, we can't stand him. Like, some I I, sometimes felt players were trying to kind of like not defend him, but Yes, you know, defend the the project and say, hey, like you know, he this is what Frank wants from us. You know, he wants all us to all defend. And and, and some of the training sessions have been hard, and they have to be precise, and you have to be crisp. Uh, but it, it was a big difference from players like after game saying, we're doing this for Tata, and like Tata's, you know, if, we wouldn't be here without him, and, and we believe in him, and he inspires us, and he makes us better. And or Tito, like you know, Tito called him his personal psychologists like you know joseph called him like a second father like Mm -hmm, those things are important they are they they are important and not every coach is like that not every coach has to be like that but if they're not going to be like that then something else has to get the players together to play usually it's like you know tactically they all believe in what they're doing and they're getting better
0: and Joseph called Tata the second father and Joseph was the one who was like ripping off his pre-wrap on around his, around yeah. his, uh, <laughs> his shooting guards when he got subbed off early and was all pissed off about it. And for, and he, and Tata called him out saying that he can't act that way. But you know, at the end of the day, those are kind of surface level things where there's a more fundamental bond Absolutely. that, that kept those guys together. Yep.
1: Let me even get like, the, I, I want to get y'all's thoughts on, do you remember, um, we kind of took stock of it a little bit on one of our shows, Joe. But Brad Guzan's press conference after what was I think it was Columbus, where he was yep. very, very open and candid, and that kind of became sort of typical, I think, under Frank, where, where players would never actually, you know, come out and say, "This is our guy." Ever, you know? Uh, yep. Did y'all pick up that same kind of sense from Guzan there?
0: For sure, like, yeah, ahead, yeah for for sure. I mean, especially after the mutual parting of ways happened um when you go back and reread that press conference it's like crystal clear exactly what he's talking about and uh, i keep when we're having this discussion i keep on thinking back i'm trying to, i was i've been trying to think back to players who i can vividly remember kind of backing the manager and one of those was julian gressel uh, last year when things were really going pear-shaped for atlanta united and he didn't really like Talk about he said I, I, I 100% back the manager, but that is kind of not that's still not on the same level as um, like that's still just kind of like uh, amb- amb- ambigu yeah. ambiguously mm-hmm. there, there. That's the word. <laughs> um, defending the manager, but not really saying anything specific as to why or why things are going to get better, how things are going to get better. It was more just like out there, and I can't, Again, I cannot really think of a, an instance where a player did that.
1: Well, it kind of leads me to the question: Then was there ever going to was there any coach who was going to come in in that situation after Todd and inspire that response? And I think there probably was, but I would love to get y'all's thoughts on it.
2: So I remember speaking to a source back. This was during Frank DeBoer's tenure, and we were talking about that. And what you know, what he told me was there's only one coach that could have succeeded Tata Martino, and that's Tata Martino. Now, he also said that there are coaches like him, and there's and that's true. There are coaches that believe in perhaps the same way of playing or a, a similar tactical philosophy, or that come from the same background. Like you know, Gabriel Hindsight played at Newell's for Tata Martino. Gabriel has you know been on the record uh speaking pretty eloquently about marcelo bielsa i mean marcelo bielsa so you guys know is like not every coach in argentina is like yes he's the guy like he's very divisive in argentina like some Mm -hmm. some people don't want to kind of be associated with bielsa um but the what what what, the type of like respect that bielsa garners is because he's always for decades played you know one way and 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 he gets the most out of his players they believe or whatever. So. To answer your question, Sam, yeah, like I think it, it it was. It's not easy to find the successor to a coach like Tessa Martino that that comes in uh, and has the success that, that he had with Atlanta United and, and and really like became real part of the of the club culture even outside of tactics. Um, but listen, they could have gone back to South America. And, and, and listen, they did interview Gabriel Milito and, and I think Milito is a player that or a coach that the players probably would have welcomed with open arms. Um, and, and the, I think the one thing that happens with Argentina and I said on, on, a, on, another podcast recently, is like, you're also getting like, it's not like every coach comes and they have like this, if you look at their record, just go to Wikipedia, like Google, like Wikipedia, like Gabriel Heinsohn, it's like one year stints all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, And so you're but you're getting that. That's what you're kind of you're marrying into that. You're marrying into this philosophy like these guys are like, all right, what's the project? Tell me. Tell me everything about it. Okay, I'm in. uh, I'll be here for whether it's two years or three years. But like they need to believe that everything from the city, the makeup of the city, the people, the roster, the technical staff, the front office, everyone has to be aligned. And then they're going to take these jobs and just like kind of crush it. Um, they're coming from a culture though, where five games into a lot of their managerial stints at these big clubs in South America is like, it's, if you're not winning, you're gone, you're gone. So I think that plays a part in the, why most of these South American managers don't stick around for very long. And I remember Tata told us in a press conference once when towards the end of his, you know, tenure at Atlanta United, where every post game question was like, where are you going? Are you going to Mexico? And he was just denied, deny, denied. denied. But at one point he's like, listen, coaches, we always have to have our suitcase ready. It's just the way they live. And so, uh, you know, I think that was something that perhaps Atlanta's front office wanted to maybe move away from and try something else. Try something where we're going to we're going to bring in this coach and he's going to be here for a while and he's going to help us build the academy and like build that pipeline. And he has experience in youth development and. You know, modern football is changing. Where tactics change and they evolve, and it, it's it can no longer be all out attack. And, and it, to me, what what I wrote today is that it was kind of a long term vision, which is a big departure from win right away, which is what worked for them initially.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm I've been thinking about about this a lot too lately. And and I, with managers in MLS, I honestly don't see it that much differently than um big dp signings that you would want to make similar to like a miguel almaron where you try to convince a player that he can come in and do a certain thing over a certain period of time and then kind of have a plan to part ways and i think that that's actually you can have you, that can be a sustainable model if you plan it out accordingly ahead of time um so that you're not kind of caught in a lurch when a, when a manager unexpectedly you know decides to go <laughs> elsewhere And I think that honestly, you know, when it comes to hiring managers, especially in MLS where you're constrained by the amount of money you can spend, everybody, you know, that's kind of designed around this parody um, thing, it it makes total sense to try to bring in the best possible manager you can. But in order to do that, I don't think like you're going to get a top tier manager or even, you know, not even a top tier global manager, but just top tier in terms of what you can bring into MLS. I don't think you're really realistically going to get a guy who will come in and be willing to stick around for five years, you know, like you're not going to get like this dynasty manager from elsewhere. I mean, you can have those guys who you develop naturally kind of like a Peter Vermees you were talking about earlier, where uh, he kind of comes through the system to an extent Mm -hmm. and, and decides to kind of build a dynasty that way. But when it comes to bringing in somebody from the outside, I think you just have to have a clear picture, picture of what the project is, what it's going to look like. And honestly, like how it's going to, um and like what is the okay. what is the exit plan for for this right. for this project and so I think that that was something that was honestly I thought it was pretty well defined in the Tata Martino era where it's like and he bought into it especially and that this was also something Sam that you and I talked about um and I think it was the last show that we did when kind of talking about who might be the best manager for Atlanta United and it doesn't matter what the name is as much as it matters that whoever it is comes in with a full commitment and a clear idea of what they want to do with the team over a certain period of time. And I thought that that was very clear under Tata Martino in what he wanted to do and why he wanted to do it and who, who, who he wanted to do it with. And it wasn't yeah. really that clear with Frank DeBoer. It was like, OK, he's going to come in and build his reputation and, 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 you know, then he can move on to his big thing. But it was just not it was it was not as clear as it was under Tata.
1: Well, in addition to you know the, the really basic fact that he wasn't going to be there for five years, I mean, he had people talking all the time about his, his youth development and everything like that. Frank was never going to stick around. Just never. <laughs> um, and yeah. you throw that in there, and then you throw in the fact that his style in general, and Felipe kind of hit on a little bit where he talked about, you know, uh, he never connected with the city in any way. And you look at the two styles, you know, between Tata and between Frank, and you had someone who... You know, really kind of embodied Atlanta. I think when you have, um, you know, the, the the high octane kind of attacking mindset going forward, and then you had a lot more pragmatism. Which is, there's nothing practical about Atlanta in so many ways, in all the best ways, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, uh, and so I think that's something they need to kind of consider going forward too. Is is who can connect with with the city and with this fan base again?
2: Sam, you wrote a piece though. You you mentioned that same type of sentiment where. You know, they, they did nail it with Tata people, people even, you didn't, you didn't have to be a South American to, to love Tata, or you didn't mm-hmm. need to be a soccer, a lifelong soccer fan to, to recognize like, wow, like this guy, like he cares about this club as much as I do, you know, or mm-hmm. he cares about winning as much as I do, or look at, look at how he's how the players play. You know, the other day, randomly, I watched the first goal from the Snow Bowl against Minnesota. <laughs> I think it was the first one from Joseph and you know, they, they kind of, they break, they, you know, it's like Garza, Almarone, Assad, and, and Joseph just like break, uh, Minnesota's press and, and Joseph slots at home. But what stuck out to me when I watched it recently was like this just wave of players sprinting to celebrate with Miguel or to to celebrate with Joseph. And I was like, wow, like, I haven't seen that in so long. Like, you know, like there were times though, there were moments, you know, you know, I I think clearly about, you know, Justin Merriman, his breakout game against Montreal, you could see that the players really wanted him to, to, to be good, to, to be successful in Atlanta. Um, But overall there was just, there was like a different chemistry, a different dynamic with the team in every match. And, And listen, they got owned a couple times with Tata. Let's be honest. Uh, so it wasn't all pr- perfect. I know Joe's brought that up, but but you can't just reinvent the wheel and expect everything to be OK. And and, and to, to Joe's point about like MLS is kind of a strange league where it's really hard to have like a Shiggy Smith or a Peter Vermees that stays at a club for a long time and just like collects trophies. Um, but equally as difficult in MLS is to define a style, define an identity, have a culture, have a philosophy and stick to it. And I felt like Atlanta United was like one of the few teams that actually did that, and they were like a brand new team. Um, and I've spoken to coaches and players that are like, "Man, that's so hard to do because this country is so big ge- geographically. It's hard to like you're playing in altitude, you're playing in heat, you're playing in cold, you're traveling like you know, just the, the travels insane. It's hard to just like be the same team every single time. And Atlanta like did it, and so to go from that and to just like change it overnight." Uh, I think they've learned from that and they should go back to what worked before. And it's not going to be the same because the roster is much different. Uh, but I think you're starting to see perhaps what Bocanegra wants to do and how he wants the team to play. Like I thought you saw flashes of it under, under Tata like, or I'm sorry, under Frank DeBoer where I thought speed of play was important. Having guys that are able to trans- transition quickly, which you could argue, oh, they did that under Tata. It was a little bit different because Tata was like pressing you really high so that you made a mistake in your own half and they just pounced mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. scored. I think with, with with De Boer, and which is, this is very, yes, this is like modern European footballs. like everyone is kind of defending and attacking all at once. And everyone's like transitioning, you're running back, you're running forward. And then you're mixing it with possession. I think that was what they want to do now by bringing in like Durgan Dam and, and Kubo Torres and possibly Jonathan Gonzalez, all Mexican internationals. Like, what does that signal for the club? Are they, are they going to jump on this potential Liga MX MLS, you know, transfer relationship, which we should see a little bit more of, do they want to be fast? Do they want to maintain possession? I think all those things need to be answered because if I'm the next manager, I, those are the first questions I'm asking, like, who's who am I playing with? What are you giving me? And I wrote in the piece today, I think it is kind of a fantasy land for managers. They all want to have control over signings. That's hard to do in any league, in any club. But I don't know if Frank had a lot of say, you know, and, and I don't blame him because he didn't know the league. He didn't know mm-hmm. the players that were available. And Carlos Bucanegro was trying to kind of like patch different holes with players that he could just kind of like bring in quickly from around the league. Uh, And I don't think the next manager is going to be okay with that, to be honest with you. I think they're going to want more say. They're going to want their own, not literally their own players, but like, I need this type of nine. I need this type of winger. I need this type of six. Uh, Don't just give me any guy and then expect me to, to make him a star.
1: They really did seem like they were just papering over issues. You know, you brought in players who are very versatile, but maybe not like super good at soccer. You know, it, it kind of <laughs> seemed like to be that kind of mentality, um, w- which kind of brings me to just the front office in general. And and you mentioned Felipe for a second there. You thought that they had learned from this. Um, I kind of want to get an idea. Y'all were both in that press conference when Stephen Glass was introduced. Um, do you get a sense that they really have taken some lessons from this or are we going to see some kind of reckoning uh, with Boca, with Yields, with with everyone involved at the top of this club? Because From people maybe I've talked to off the record, um, you know, they have indicated that there might be larger issues within the club in general from a from a managerial front office perspective.
2: I'll take it first. I mean, I think, first of all, the front office, for as much credit as they earned, uh, they deserve criticism for for the way that this turned out, for the way that the Frank DeBoer hire uh, was made and and what the plans were and how just, you know, pretty much the the culture just kind of crumbled in front of everybody. and, and Carlos Buckingham as a technical director and leading that, that, that scouting department uh, as well. Like the, the, the players that he brought in did not really help the team. Now the big, you know, elephant in the room is that Joseph got hurt and, and that'll, you know, that, that could have messed with the 2018 team. Let's be honest. Like the, mm-hmm. the 2018 team that won the, the MLS cup, they don't have Joseph. They lose Joseph in the first match and who knows what happened. So that has to be, you know, that, that needs to be clear, but, to Sam's point, yes, I think I don't know about reckoning, but I do think that they are humbled by this. I thought Darren Eagles, when he spoke to us recently, was very honest and and pretty humble about like, hey, we're not going to get everything perfect. Uh, you know that they they do. It's like kind of like admitting that we need to go back to who we were. We want to be this team that's attacking. We want to have fun because you know that's something that I remember I, I tweeted once. It was at the, it was at the L A after the L A Galaxy game here last season. You know, Atlanta won, but they were coming off like some pretty poor performances. And I remember I tweeted like, I don't know if this team is having fun anymore. And like a lot of fans just like jumped on me like, oh, you're such a hater. And I'm like, I mean, that's just like it's basic stuff, though. You see that and you see teams like in Orlando that clearly they want to be there. Clearly they're having fun. They're going for this this tournament trophy. They're going for the million bucks. They're going for the CONCACAF championship berth. And a lot of the teams that aren't in it anymore, like they didn't have that commitment. And Atlanta United was one of those teams that just wasn't having fun anymore. So that goes squarely back to the decision makers, you know, the ones that bring in the players, that hire the coaches, that hire the physios, that, that, that rely on the sports, sports science guy, like everything. I think everything needs to be reevaluated. And what I said today in the piece is like Atlanta United is one of those clubs that's like they're well-funded, they're, you know, essentially they're well-run, that they can course correct pretty quickly. Like they have everything in place to do it, but they need to make the right decisions. And they, I think they do need to learn from this.
0: Before we get back into the show, I did just want to remind everybody that this episode is brought to you by our friends at lucid FC. That is lucid footwear and clothing. You can check them out at lucidfc.us, not.com, .us. And if you're new to the show, and you're just kind of learning about lucid fc they're like a modern european fashion brand they've got some really cool stuff so i really do recommend everybody go to their website and check them out maybe the most interesting thing they have though is masks you should you should be interested in getting a mask. They've got some really cool ones. Um, they've got the they're like the ones that form a special nasal passage too, and it complements the face contours and has three layers, washable and reusable. So it's like the best mask you can possibly get. And of course, they're designed up all really cool so that you'll want to wear them. And the coolest part about it all is that they've set up a partnership with a number of hospitals around the world to provide face masks for them. So for each purchase that is placed with Lucid FC they will donate four times the the amount of masks that you bought to health officers, healthcare workers around the world. So you can be sure that while you're protecting yourself, you're also protecting other people, which is fantastic. Um, You can get free shipping with them through DSS. If you just enter shipping code DSS at checkout, you can get free shipping. Um, And you can also pick up Curbside if you want from their studio in Buckhead. If you want to do that, just uh, on your order, choose pickup and not shipping. And it's as easy as that. So with that out of the way, let's get into the rest of the show. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I I keep thinking about that. I wrote a piece uh, this January when Leandro left or when he was sold um, about how his departure was really, for me, that was the delineation of like this new era at Atlanta United. Like for as much as we've talked about Tata Martino, you know, kind of like his, his, Tata Martino's regime versus Frank DeBoer's, I really think that the sale of Leandro, because he was such a, important figure within the team in terms of being that leader and especially in 2019 the year you know the year where Tata Martino is suddenly gone and I think that Leandro felt that it was his responsibility uh, in the team to kind of to be the uniter and be the be the guy who you know puts the pieces together so to speak in the way that you know Tata Martino always did before him and so I think that you know the initial <laughs> the initial uh, results from this second this second era of Atlanta United have been a pretty dismal failure. Um, but, you know, like you said, there there is the people in place and, and the structure in place for things to correct. I do. I am curious on the scouting side as to um, kind of what leads into the decisions they make. I know Carlos has talked a lot about just like the general the process that they use in terms of evaluating a player. But you know, I keep on going back to a piece that um, one of our writers at Dirty South Soccer, Teodal Football, wrote about Pitti Martinez when everybody was kind of complaining about him last year and he was just digging into some of the you know, the XG numbers and stuff like that and he was like, actually, this is kind of as much of like, that's this is as good of a chance creator as he's been <laughs> ever, um, and just in terms of like, you know, the numbers he was looking at at the time, and I do wonder if the team like, if you go back and look at Pitti Martinez's highlights and stuff like that, it's a lot of like long shot goals and stuff that's And then like cool dribbles that are obviously great. You know, like we all love to see that kind of flair and that's, Mm -hmm. it makes for an amazing YouTube compilation, but it's like at the end of the day, was he the right fit for the pieces that were already in place here? And I think that when we look at the team right now, a lot of the um, kind of one of the issues tactically, especially is like, how do you fit Ezekiel Barco and Pitti Martinez in the same team? Cause they kind of want to do the same types of things. Mm -hmm. They want to be this kind of free number 10, type of player who has freedom on the pitch. But if you have two of those guys, it's a lot harder to,
2: to make that work in the way that they want to play. So there I think was a that... Time, Joe, there was a time in Orlando ahead. where Pizzi and Barco ran into each other in the <laughs> field. And like, these are good players, man. These are yeah. good players, smart players tactically. So, And I remember watching that, I think it was against uh, Cincinnati and being like, what is going on? Like, this is it. Like, the, the, the Titanic is like, we're watching it just sink. You know, because yeah. they don't know what they're doing. And, and these are smart players, experienced players. Uh, I think you make a great point, Joe, because, you know, PT Martinez and we'll, we'll get to this someday. But like that transfer, I mean, first of all, he thought he was going to play for Tata. Let's be honest. Sure. That oh, transfer 100%. took was so many months in the making that when it probably began, Tata was still the coach. And Taza had not decided to leave, you know, and and so I remember I remember asking,
0: I, I don't know if it was you or somebody else was like asking about the 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 pity rumors when he was there. And he was like,
2: <laughs> he's a great player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He knew he knew they were they were looking at him. And listen, yeah. in the end, Atlanta United, which is something that they're always going to be, I think, able to do is they will be able to outbid teams. OK, and mm-hmm. so like Pete Martinez is. is at the time, the top player in South America, in my opinion, well deserved because he he's, he wins his second Copa Libertadores. Like that is not easy to do. He was playing really well, playing for a great manager who understood him, who also had to like kind of crack him into shape and work him into the system and, and you know get inside his head. All those things work out. An entire club is essentially playing around PT Martinez. Like River Plate understood. Okay, we know what type of player he is. This is how we can deploy him. They they. They really, like doubled down on his mentality. Like he is kind of like a soccer psycho. Like he wants to be in the big moments. He wants to score the big goals. And he was doing that in Argentina. So, but this kid, you know, PT at the time, what twenty five, wants to go to Europe. The, the 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 money that is being offered from teams in Italy, perhaps, isn't enough for a River Plate club that needs cash, needs capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couple that with the fact that he did, I believe, he did not have a European passport. And then here comes Atlanta United with the money that River Plate's asking for, you know, the $14 or whatever it may be. They can't say no to that. River Plate can't say no. And maybe at one time, PT was like, I'd rather go to Europe. But, okay, it is Atlanta United. I've heard of them. I've heard of Tata. He told us once in a scrum, I watched them play. I liked how they played. Guess what? Because they kind of played like River. <laughs> they, they, they were up and down the field. They're attacking people. They're on the front foot, home, home and away. So he probably saw that, sees Miguel. And he's like, all right, like right, I'm in. But then he gets here. He was and like, it's they look like... like they have good immigration lawyers there. <laughs> <laughs> but he gets here and it's not, it's just like, it's kind of like not what he was, in my opinion, sold on. And And, you know, Frank, I think, just didn't know how to play, you know, where to play him. And the relationship never worked. And so we still don't know what PT can do, really. Like, maybe this is as good as he's going to get. Uh, but clearly, he's a player that needs all the other nine players around him to understand what he's what he can do well. Um, and, you know, I, I remember early on, I compared him to Carlos Vela, not like as a, like, a like, like for like, but I remember saying, like, man, I bet Atlanta United would love... P.T. to be that Carlos Vela type of player who's like away from the tackles, away from the MLS style of games, just kind of lurking, lingering. You get him the ball, he makes something happen, Mm -hmm. and I I believe he could do that. I just don't think Frank really knew how to how to do that. Where to put him, you know. And mentally, you know, P.T. told us after the Matagalpa game, like I don't think he was really into it his first season. So it just was just again a lot of things happening around the club that didn't help. going back to what both you and sam said i agree i think the scouting it's like let's just be honest it has to get better it has to get Mm -hmm. better it has to align with whatever this club wants to be it can't just be like sam said kind of bringing in these players that are pretty good here and pretty good there but collectively it's like did we even get better i think that's what fans are saying did we get better you know as a journalist i'm like i can tell you that they did not like i could see why an
0: analyst would kind of say okay i think that we can you know Uh, changing out Julian Gressel for Brooks Lennon. We can save a lot of money. I could see why an analyst would be, would like make a comparison to those two players and be like, yeah, okay, that that makes sense. We should probably do that. We can actually, you know, add value somewhere else in the team. But I think like, you know, but it it kind of ignores everything else that Julian Gressel was,
2: which was obviously so much more than just a guy who put in crosses. Julian was part of that group of players that, uh, you know, comes out of college ha- has to earn the trust of a man- of an international manager like Tata Martino started in central midfield the first game started the first game he started the inaugural game and I remember being in the stadium being like this kid's pretty good you know like he, you know, he didn't have a great game but like yeah. you could kind of tell why a manager like Tata was like I'm gonna you're, you're gonna get the start um, and, and so yeah Julian t- to his credit he became this player that really you know became part of the brand of soccer in Atlanta. Uh, and, and, and I think what, something that's super important to say, speaking of Julian and Leandro, to your point, these guys wanted to stay like, let's, you know, they would have stayed and played for Frank DeBoer mm-hmm. again, you know, like, I think that says a lot about the commitment of some of those players and how they felt about the club, how they felt about playing for Atlanta United, living in Atlanta with their families and all that. So it's not like everyone was like, we just hate Frank. We want out. Like I, even Darlington Nagbe at one point probably was like, I'll stay, but these are my conditions. If not, you know, I'll, I'll go to Columbus, whatever it may be. But I think all these players, they were willing to work it out, you know, especially Leandro, that kind of got victimized or like, you know, as as this guy that was like the cancer in the locker room or, you know, and I, I don't think that was the case at all. Like he wanted a new deal. He would have stayed and and, and made this work.
0: Agree. I think, you know, I, even a guy like Darlington Nagby, I know he had his personal reasons for wanting to go back, but like, I think he would have stayed for a DP contract, you know. Um, I
2: guarantee he would have stayed for that. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, I think that with all these guys, I think that there was a way to keep things more intact than they did. But, you know, again, this this is the bed that the front office made, and they're laying in it now. And so (laughs) they've got a chance to make things right. But, you know, clearly they deserve criticism for the way this thing has gone so far.
1: They've got a chance to make it right. And, of course, obviously that starts with... Next manager, uh, Felipe. Of course, we talked about it already a few times, so we want to keep plugging it. Um, your piece today talked about a lot of the potential candidates uh, for Atlanta United going forward. Um, are there any in particular that stand out immediately for you, and why do they?
2: Yeah, I mean, right away, like let's let's hit the less not the not the ideal candidate first, but Gabriel Melito, who we did talk about. I mm. think is worth mentioning again because he did go through the interview process. And let's not forget, like, uh, Guillermo Barrosa Scalotto was also part of that interview process, you know, and he ended he ends up at L.A. Uh, there's always going to be that. Would he have been the right guy for Atlanta? It's easy to look at the way LA, the L.A. Galaxy plays today and say, well, maybe Atlanta made a good decision of not bringing him in. But the one thing that Scalotto was able to do at times at Boca Juniors was just get the team to win games like and he had a pretty stacked roster at Boca and sometimes they wouldn't win the big ones I mean again losing in Madrid to River Plate is like they'll never live that down like you don't you can't live that down when it's against your like eternal rival but he won a lot of other games and 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 he was able to get a result so that's that but Gabriel Melito I think is still a guy that I think he should be you know in the conversation He's available uh like you mentioned sam like barco played for him barco told me specifically like everyone was committed to the way he wanted to play they played aggressively there was an intensity about him there was a respect for him like the Milito name is very well respected in argentina and and especially in south america this is both militos were played at very high level legend Yeah. yeah i mean gabriel in his own right played for for barcelona as well uh, both national team players you know both both Diego and Gabriel Melito uh, and, and Gabriel's like I think he's still a coach that's trying to find his way like he jumped around he went to Argentina took, went to Chile uh, he would have these like bad losses in domestic cups and like I mentioned before in South America like that's the type of environment where in the post-game press conference after losing to a small team you're like maybe I should go you know it's like that's what it is like in South America. <laughs> and like Gabriel Melito, like he did that a few times, but I think he's there. He should be considered. Um, you know, I wrote about Gustavo Alfaro, who's the former Boca Juniors coach. Going back to Boca Juniors, he was just the most recent one. Uh, that, you know, he, he managed uh, Gonzalez Perez in, in two instances and even tried to bring him back to Boca while Gonzalez Perez was playing for Atlanta United. So there's like that, there's like a little connection there already to MLS and Atlanta United. Uh, you know, he's a player, he's a, a manager that's very well respected by players. So there's that man management issue that they did not have with Frank that I think players want. And I think the front office is probably going to take very seriously. The, the the issue I think with Gustavo, Gustavo Alfaro is, you know, you get into this like territory of he's Tata-like, which I think can be kind of dangerous. Like it's, I think leave Tata where he is. And then just like, what's, what, what does this coach do? Well, Mm -hmm. Gustavo Alfaro again, didn't win the big games for Boca juniors, but it's like such a pressure field job. Also, he is kind of defensive. Like that is his instinct is to set the team up to, you know, secure shutouts. But if you look at the number of goals that Boca junior scored under him, it was 73. That's a lot of goals. And so, Again, he had some frontline players that were very good. So Gustavo Alfaro, former Boca Juniors manager, uh, I think will be a top candidate. Who I think would be there are two home run guys. One is uh Miguel era El Piojo, you know, from Club America. Mm-hmm. I just think any any MLS team that ends up landing him if if possible is gonna knock it out of the park because he's a big personality, uh I think when he is at an ambitious club like Club America that gets the players that they want, you know, he can set up teams to really attack you and really hurt you. He's still doing that. They're not doing great in preseason. And they're even, if you get on Twitter and go to Club America Twitter, there are a lot of fans that want him out. They're like, they're done. Like, come on, we can't lose to Cruz Azul. We can't lose to these clubs. But they're a very good team. You know, they, like, mm-hmm. we, everyone knows that. And he's, He is a capable manager, has, has managed at the top level internationally as well. He has a four-year contract. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so that's that. The other one, who I think, and I wrote in the piece, is the ideal candidate, uh, and I felt like he was a big ideal candidate when Frank De was was hired as Gabriel Heinzett. I mean, Let's he. Go! You
1: know, that's it, our boy. It really. Did. I mean, listen. It's
2: <laughs> I, I. That is, you know, Joe's reaction says a lot about the type of manager that that he can be for this club because. Immediately, he's going to galvanize not just the locker room, but again, the fans, fans around the city and be like, whoa, you know, we've got hindsight. We got hindsight. A guy that forget about his playing career. It was spectacular. uh, But only at, at 42, he's already, you know, considered a top manager in South America. Again, didn't win like the big tournaments and the big trophies, but took a Vela Sarsfield club that is historically a top club in South America. They were struggling and he you know, made them into a club with an identity. And he did it in like an mls E kind of way, like bringing in some like veterans that maybe other clubs were had forgotten about, putting them in certain situations where, okay, I need you, the 36-year-old number six, to be that guy. But next to you is going to be 21-year-old Nicolas Dominguez that, guess what, they sold him for almost 10 million euros to Serie A playing ahead of you is going to be a 19-year-old phenom that, you know, that he's going to end up at one of the biggest clubs in Thiago Almada. He brings in Fernando Gaga, who everyone remembers from his time with Argentina and Real Madrid. Now, Gago again, he's injury prone. And yeah, he played two matches for Velas. And again, like, I think he tore up his knee, but still it's like he brings in these guys (laughs) that are like, I'll play for you, man. Yeah, I'll play for you and I'll do what you want. Uh, there are some stories that I read about that, you know, when they went to preseason camp last year, Heinze, who is the type of manager that a reporter would probably love to cover because his post-game press conferences are are awesome. Like he'll talk tactics. He'll give you philo- philosophical quotes. Uh, he's very candid. I think he's very honest. But um, I wrote today that he's a disciplinarian because there, there are stories about him in, in Argentina where, when Velas went to a preseason camp before I think the 2019 season they went somewhere and kind of stayed in the, a dorm like of dorm like you know camp and he took away all the players cell phones and their <laughs> playstations <laughs> and the, oh, the counseling yeah, Totally. Right. And it's like and because and, the point of the camp was not to stay up until 1 a.m. playing FIFA or playing Warzone, whatever it is that every other player is doing right now. It was to get mentally ready for the season, to understand the tactics, to, to be bought into the philosophy. And it was I think for a manager, it's like, let's see who starts to crack. Let's see who doesn't want to be part of this. So those are important managers. That type of manager got Hindsight, at 42 I think would be you know a knockout for MLS, and his style of play is ideal for Atlanta United. There are a lot of good coaches, but not everyone like not everyone wants to attack like Tata. And I know Tata like changed stuff up you know in 2018. That's fine. Every manager should do that. But overall, you know he wants to be out there attacking, and so it's hard to find a manager that's like committed to that. And uh, that's why Heinz is for me is like the the top target. Now you, you mentioned some of the quotes that we have from. Former players talking about other manager, Gustavo Quinteros, who's Argentine, but he's Bolivian. He's a naturalized Bolivian. He played for the Bolivian national team. He was uh, Gonzalez Perez's coach at Club Tijuana. And he, yeah, like González Perez, when I spoke to him in January, like had a lot of great things to say about Quinteros. That he's very much like Tata as far as personality goes, the respect that he kind of earns from the players. And they did play in a very similar 4-2-3-1 formation where you know, you're, you're attacking all the time. Uh, it's very direct, but I don't think he's like at the Tata level as far as like, we're really going to be like down your throat, but still an available manager that should probably have a conversation. So I did not mention Mauricio Pochettino for anyone that's out there. listening. Uh, I think he was in like the
0: first reply in,
2: in right? your, in your yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah in your article. Um, But but I I think you know what I've been saying the last few weeks is in order for Atlanta United to get back to where they were and to maximize the talent that they have and again it's not there's still a lot of South Americans I think there's nine now coming with 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 Eric Lopez there could be even more Latin Americans if if these Mexican players end up all coming and so it makes sense to have a manager from Latin America that understands the the culture understands how these players tick can get the most out of them so I think Atlanta United will probably stick to that region.
1: I think the most important thing to consider about Heinze, and he has he something that none of the other managers we've discussed so far really have, um, and it's something that I think could be crucial. Um, he's the only manager mentioned in the Panama Papers to be discussed.
2: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> um, he, resourceful. Resourceful. Exactly. He just, That's exactly he, what that is.
0: Fits MLS to a T. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> it's good to see. <laughs> it, I true. feel, I don't know, I feel like five-start final is somewhat... Vindicated here with you coming on and and essentially hyping up the guy that Joe has been been pushing for like <laughs> well, a good week here.
0: I was in Felipe's DMs like a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Uh, like, okay, <laughs> Yeah,
1: he was totally. He's like Einza
2: man. And I, and like I said last year when there when 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 Tata officially said he's out and 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 Eels like had remember Eels went to Fado and Buckhead and and kind of had this you know sp- speech to the fans that like we're never going to lose our identity. Which I mean. Looking back, it's like, wow, you know, <laughs> they they, they kind of did. But uh, from that moment on, uh, you know, I, I I zeroed in on Gabriel Heinze because he was still with Velas at the time. But, you know, he was the type of manager that I saw like, hey, he could be a guy that's like, all right, I'll take over that team. Like, I, I, I know Tata. I know what Tata wants. I'll probably talk to Tata and Tata will tell me what works, what doesn't work, how to play where to adjust, the type of players that work, the type of opponents that you're going to face. Um, and he could use it as a springboard as well. Um, so now, now he's without a job, Heinze, because he chose to lose to, to leave Velez. It's not like he was forced out. He chose to leave. Uh, and, and who knows what he's waiting for? I think a lot of top managers like like Heinze, uh, Hernan Crespo, you know, former amazing striker for Argentina, Chelsea, Inter Milan, you name it, Know, he's currently coaching at Defensa and Justicia. Uh, I think a lot of these guys are angling for the river plate job. They're waiting to see yeah. what Marcelo Gajardo is going to do. Uh, in, my, in my opinion, especially someone like Hernan Crespo, who is a river plate icon, another idol. Um, I think they're waiting to see. I don't know if Heinze is, himself is, but Heinze is one of the guys that, if we're going to compare Alfaro, Gustavo Alfaro, and Heinze, Here's two things that I'll bring up. When Heine, when Velas went to the Monumental, you know, River Plate's famous stadium last year, it was kind of like a build as a big match because it was like these two managers, Mars, you know, Gajardo against Heinze, two exciting teams. And it was like, who's gonna be the team that kind of sits back more? Who's gonna be the one that 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 lets the game come to them? And Velez, like Who's gonna be the God, bitch? Basically, basically. <laughs> Uh Velez <laughs> went after River Plate, man. Like Heinz, it was like, we're going to win here. And, yeah, it wasn't like they were all out attack, but they p- took the game to River Plate, you know, to, to Marcelo Gallardo's famed system, attacking system. They were in their grill trying to win that game. It ended up tied 1-1. It was a great game. Now, Gustavo Alfaro, well-respected manager, when he took his Boca Jr. side to the Monumental last season, he defended with, like, seven guys most of the game and and chose to kind of like just absorb kick a little bit. You know, he did have a really stout defense and he did improve Boca's defense from scalotto's tenure. Um, but he didn't really go after the game. And like he, to this day, if you, you can you, you guys might have to use Google Translate, but you can go online and like My best read friend. yeah and, and read those <laughs> like those the, the analysis of that game and the analysis of Gustavo Alfaro's short tenure um at Boca and that game is still brought up the fact that he did have the guys that could have gone and like really you know pressured down the wings and made it difficult for River and instead he you know just tried to keep it at zero and 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 kind of survive and so he he has that that he has to live with I think so that's why I think Heinze is the right guy Heinze and, and Milito to me are like they're pretty close to being like the ideal fit.
0: Well, that's interesting because I know a lot of Atlanta United fans have obviously been (laughs) angling for Marcelo Gallardo to be an Atlanta United manager, which I I think is kind of as unrealistic as, uh, as Pochettino.
2: Yes. To the
0: extent that they both want to be managing at the top tier in Europe, you know, it's like, Mm. it doesn't serve them to come to Atlanta United at this stage of their careers, but that's a good, that's a good point to kind of keep a heads up on that situation because of the knock-on effects that will, it'll have for the, actual Atlanta United uh, candidates. So,
2: absolutely. I mean, Gajardo's you've got Pep Guardiola saying that he thinks Marcelo Gajardo is one of the top managers in the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's going to come to Atlanta. And again, this is what I gather from like watching press press conferences with Gajardo, you know, I I think he's probably somewhat upset that PT came to MLS. I don't think he wanted PT. I don't think he wanted that for PT to be to mm-hmm. to, to be part of like the machine, the transfer machine where it's not always up to the player. It's, it's the club saying, guys, we've got 15 million coming in. He's got to go. Um, and, and what you saw last season at, at River Plate where, you know, they had other players that were being targeted by the galaxy and LAFC and Guardiola is like, they're only going to top team, man. Like he started, like, I felt like he was being very open. Like my guys are going to top teams. My guys are worth that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, yeah, Gajardo was close. Like he was in the conversation with Inter Miami. Like I think those conversations got pretty far. Uh, but again, you're talking about a, diff- a different situation. I think the money just was, w- w- they could not align with money. And perhaps the Inter Miami project made a little bit more sense to him. Um, but I think that has moved, that train has left. I think to your point, Joe, I think Gajardo is looking, I'm going to finish at River and move on to Europe. Now, if you could the River Twitter is like they're happy with twitter with with Gajardo being the guy forever. he's that mm. special, he's that special so um that's that's a hard candidate to bring into MLs even at United, which is like one of the high profile jobs. I think yeah, I just don't think to see that happening.
1: well, you mentioned that you want to keep an eye on that situation because uh, it might be a domino and all this. I wanted to kind of get an idea from both of you really on on how long this might take because I, I know from a fan's perspective great,
2: great question
1: it's going to be they're going to get antsy you know and, and they yeah. may not be you know too comfortable with with Stephen Glass leading things to the rest of maybe an 18 game season coming through here um they they probably want they want to know I want to know everyone wants to know um what are y'all's thoughts
0: well I'll I'll let Felipe go on this because I think that you probably have some better insight than I would <laughs> but I think that it makes sense for them to Like you want to take your time, but at the same time, you want to know who the manager is going to be so that you can actually adjust in the transfer window. You can actually manipulate your squad to suit that manager's wants and needs, uh, which I think we've kind of talked about a lot of the problems that the front office had with that with Frank DeBoer coming in. So I think that for that reason, you don't want to just wait forever, Um, you know, even though you might technically have a long time to hire a manager, I think you want to have an idea of who's coming in maybe it doesn't even have to be the exact manager but if you have a couple guys that you're down to who are kind of similar in style or in their philosophies um i think you want to kind of whittle that down pretty soon but i mean obviously they have some time but i think it's like i think a lot of people are thinking of this uh this search taking
2: course over eight months or so and i think it'll be a lot sooner than that i agree i i definitely believe without totally saying I know, but I, I totally do believe that they're already talking to managers. They're already talking to candidates. They probably, oh, yeah, I'm that, sure. that, that may have happened before the Friday that, that Frank and the club mutually parted away because they, listen, they knew that this was not going to end well either. And there were other, there were other candidates. There still are candidates uh, that were available. Like I, in the very, the, fee, the piece that we wrote the day that, that uh, Frank DeBoer was like, Oh, like we included Dom, Domain Turan because He's a manager that I think is, I think he would come back to MLS for the right job. Like, he, 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 he's a good coach. Like, he's a good I would like him. I would like him at Atlanta. I, I think, think it would, he would, I think it would I, be great. Yeah, I, I think he's like, if you're going European, now that, that is a, again, that is a risk. I had a conversation with a friend today about that. That would be a huge risk for Atlanta United to say, we're going European again. You better nail it. You better mm-hmm. nail it. Okay? Because it, you didn't the first time when you decided to go to Europe. Now, Domi Torrent, Catalan, you know, from the Pep Guardiola tree, uh, managed one of the best teams in MLS last season in NYCFC. They, you know, they were close to winning the Supporters Shield. They were a good team. They came into Mercedes-Benz Stadium and like would try to win games against Atlanta. Uh, then they destroyed them in destroyed Atlanta, uh, at, you know, at the baseball pitch. But uh, yeah, he he's a good he's a tactician. He he's a football guy he's a football mind he understands philosophies he understands tactics now i don't know if he's like the right guy like as far as man management goes like you know i don't know but i think he's a he's a viable candidate now he's taken the Flamengo job Flamengo, one of the biggest clubs in south america one of the biggest clubs from a just fan perspective in the it's world it's a huge job it's an yeah. amazing club and a huge job to your point uh, he, he originally the reports were that he signed for just a year, which I was like, that's interesting because maybe he is waiting to see what happens. Not only in Atlanta, maybe he's waiting to see what happens with the LA galaxy. That could be a job that I think Domi Tarrant would love. Mm-hmm. So the latest is that he did sign with Floringo f- until 2022, but we don't know what type of outs he has. And maybe there's an out clause where if an MLS job opens, he's going to take it. The point is, is that, uh, I don't think this is going to be an eight month search, but COVID is a big deal here. Like that could be one of the reasons why, or another reason why they take their time to see like what's going to happen with the sport in general, what's going to happen with MLS. When is the right time to bring in a coach and let him work with a team if they're not going to play any games or work with a team that uh, is going to change drastically from now until whenever soccer and sports are back to normal. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not an enviable position for the front office, uh, but I think coaches will be willing to, to come. I think they'll be willing to, to, to kind of manage that. You look at inter Miami, Nashville, I don't think they ever expected their inaugural seasons to be what it is today. Uh, but they're dealing with it. So clearly not, I mean, not, not in the best way. Inter-Atlanta has not won a game. Nashville had a COVID breakout. They did not participate, but, but they're managing. So uh, I understand the fans perspective that they're going to want to know who's coming and when, but you know, Stephen Glass, I think Atlanta United is pretty lucky to have, to have had Stephen Glass in the organization because, you know, we're going to find out like how good a tactician perhaps he is whenever these games get, get back going. But, You know, I think he is well-respected by players, both first team, second team, academy. Uh, I know when I talk to him, I feel like I'm talking to a guy that's very knowledgeable of the game, a guy that understands, like, not just, oh, here's our system and this is how we're going to play. I think he just understands soccer players. He understands footballers. He understands what they go through, what they struggle with, you know, why they're not happy, uh, you know, you know, in spite of, I guess, being Scottish, I think he really knows how like creative South American players may want to be and react on the pitch. And I think he's going to let them do that. He told us that in his, in his you know, introductory Zoom call that he feels like maybe this club needs a little bit different man management, uh, that some players need a little bit more freedom. So I think they're lucky that he's here in place. Uh, I don't again, we just don't know how the season is going to go. And from what our colleagues at the athletic are reporting is, and, and Paul Tener and State School did like an Instagram live yesterday where they're hearing that I think the terminology is hyper-regional as far as like mm-hmm. the type of games that will be played. So that means, you know, you could see Atlanta United playing, Atlanta gets Nashville again, and <laughs> Atlanta and Nashville might play <laughs> numerous times, Atlanta and Orlando, Orlando might play man. a bunch of times and, and inner Miami, like Miami. Mm-hmm. So, so is that enough of a barometer for, to judge Stephen Glass as a manager? Probably not. Um, but stranger things have happened. Someone asked me on Twitter, like, is there any chance that Stephen Glass can, you know, become the first team manager? And I'm like, well, there's always a chance. Anything really is, is possible. Is, especially in 2020, man. Like yeah. anything <laughs> is possible. Uh, but Darren Eales has been pretty open about searching for a permanent manager. So I think patience is going to be a virtue.
0: One of the things uh, I just want to say one thing about Stephen Glass, I think the most important thing that he said during that press conference that he did uh, was that he said he had already been meeting with the players and, and had talked to almost every single one of them individually. And I think that beyond whatever formation he runs, whatever that kind of stuff, I think that that is the kind of thing that will get players on board. However, like however well they knew him or not before that point, I think that that's what the, these players specifically, especially will want Is to just be, you know, get on the same page with their manager, um, and know that their manager is listening to them. So I think that uh I think that we'll see a simplified version. I think we'll probably see more pressing from the team, clearer Mm. instructions, simpler roles, not as much fluidity from back to front in terms of what players are being asked to do. And I think that it will suit a lot of these guys. So I think that the
2: team will actually perform well under glass. I agree. I I would be shocked if they come out in like a three-four-three-three a a back three in general, you know, like, because to your point, Joe, the fact that he's gone to players and talked to them, it's not like the only player that he had a heart to heart was with a guy like PT, who has been, you know, struggling a little bit and and wanting to be, you know, wanting to show his stuff. I'm sure he had a long talk with like Jeff Lorenowitz and Brad Guzan, who were probably like, bro, like we cannot play (laughs) with a back three, you know, or like it did not work when we did this. You know, and so he's gonna be like, "All right, we're not doing that." Uh, you know, so after they went out of Orlando, I remember so I, I tweeted because I was getting these like either DMs or like colleagues asking me like, "Okay, well, like, what should Atlanta have done then?" And one of the things, I, one of the first things I said was like, "Maybe they should have just stuck to Adam John, man. Like, maybe they should have just like stuck to a back four, you know, a four-two-three-one or a four-four-two even, and just played and just like kind of played in a structure where at least." If I'm a player, like, you know, when you're playing, when things are not going right, when you look around and your teammate is not where he's supposed to be, where, you know, the other team is like, we're going to attack your left back because he's hanging out in our box. Like, you know, those things and it, it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's confusing and it pisses you off. And so I think those, those are the conversations that he probably had. And I think Joe, you bring up a good point. I think they'll probably look, Safer is a bad word, but like I think they will have a, a real clear structure. And hopefully, if I'm Steven Glass, he's getting the players in positions, the right players, to just create a little bit more in Excel.
0: K-I-S-S. K-I-S-S keep it simple, stupid. right? That's totally. the,
1: We're going to keep it simple, it. too, and, and go ahead and start <laughs> thinking about getting out of here. Uh, Felipe, <laughs> any, any plugs you want to make, man? Anything you may have going on right now? Any, any hints at stories coming up that are going to rock the United Universe? before we get out
2: oh gosh no I mean I think the story I wrote today was one I've been wanting to write you know I wanted to Mm -hmm. kind of lay that get that story out about what is the profile like because we've talked about it's going to be a it could potentially be a long search uh it, it may not be but you know I think it's important to and this 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 pod that we did today was important because we can kind of get deeper into like the types of candidates and what works what may not work Uh, you know, I, I wanted to touch on roster management. I think, you know, in the piece I wrote, it has to get better. Um, scouting has to get better alignment with the manager needs to improve. Um, and, and those are things that a big club like Atlanta United needs to fix right away. So that story was important. Like I am focusing a little bit more on, uh, on champions league, meaning UEFA, not games, but I'm getting into like, what is happening with coverage like why is CBS why should you care about CBS why should you You care about today in it like are you are you they make the right call with their studio team so I had a conversation with the CBS people and I'm writing that story now that I think people will find interesting because it's not just a media story Uh, there, there is thinking behind it there's there's you know there's a reason why they chose the people that they did and perhaps why you don't see someone like Stu Holden who I think does a great job you know, I think Stu Holden is one of the one of the top analysts in America right now. But uh, they chose a very specific European-based team to talk Champions League, and they have their reasons. So I'm going to get into some of that stuff as
1: well. well. Excellent, excellent. You can follow Felipe on Twitter, at Felipe Carr. And, of course, uh, subscribe to The Athletic Support Journalism. Support Felipe's excellent work as well, if you can. Uh, you know where we're at. Me and Joe will be back with the show hopefully sometime next week maybe I don't know maybe I don't know it's weird because there's like
0: it's weird it Felipe you can commiserate with me on this there's like no media like there's no No. No. we're not talking to any players like even though they're training normally in a normal situation we would be you know still at least going to the training ground and getting some access and like it's just kind of stinks right now there's nothing
2: so maybe something next week I'm sure Kubo Torres will be available soon I mean they they tend to do that but they haven't made that one available yet Uh, I think it would be it would be nice to t- to talk to Steven Glass again. He's had a couple of weeks now of training, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and I, you know, so th- I think that's important to your point. Like we usually, there's a there's usually like a, a more the cadence is a little bit more pronounced. And like right now, yeah. so many things are up in the air that we don't know when we're going to be able to report things out to to the fan base. But right,
0: hopefully, yeah, ho- ho- hopefully we get uh, <laughs> the next the announcement of when who who is going to be the next team on the schedule coming soon.
1: Do do want to say, as yeah. we were doing this, um, FC Dallas and Nashville announced that they're going to play each other, and that's official now. Uh, so that's going to be like oh, three man. games. Uh, ben Wright was the first to report that, and Tenorio and, and StageCaller are jumping on it now and saying those games are going to be played in front of fans. Um, so <laughs> take, take that for what it's worth. Um, oh, goodness. It's wild, oh, wow. it, But at the very least, it looks like there are some sort of games on the horizon for us, um, at least until every single human of that game gets COVID. So, cool. Great work.
0: <laughs> well, as for as for our podcast schedule, it might be next week, it might be the week after. We'll see. We'll,
1: let you we'll play know. by ear. We'll let you know. Felipe, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it.
2: Anytime, you guys. I always have fun. Um, enjoy talking to you guys, even off the pod, whether it's Joe and my DMs, we're just reading Sam's great stuff over at MLS Soccer. Make sure you guys read that. I'm plugging your own stuff now, Sam. So I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. Invite me back on, man.
0: It's, a, it's always it. a good time. I was just going to say, 100% getting you back on soon. We'll make it a regular thing.
1: All right, guys. We'll Thanks it, we'll again. Let's get out of here. Bye, y'all.